Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. This episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the original Philly fanatic, Dave Raymond. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we got a real unique guest. I've been to just about every park in America, and and when players, when we're in the dugout, we watch everything. We watch the Jumbotron, we watch the sausage races, and we pay attention to the mascots. For my money, he's the best to ever do it. He's the original Philly fanatic. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Raymond. David, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure, Brett, and I, the only thing that's bad about this is that it just makes me feel so old to be talking to you. Uh, I'm I'm just absolutely blessed to be able to be here. But, you know, I just remember you and your brother just being, I mean, little tiny kids running around Veterans Stadium. And, and now here we are so many years later. And I, I, I just got to check the calendar to make sure that I'm still going to be here on this earth a few years longer. So I, I appreciate you thinking of me. It is amazing how old we're getting. You know, you were at the time, I I forget, I was probably, when you first became the Fanatic in 78, I had to be nine years old. So you were what, 20? I was 20. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I remember you're just, you know, you're going to, you just finished puberty. It seems like it was yesterday, too. That's the way time goes. I mean, it just does not seem that long ago. And, you know, it's a sobering thing to, to recognize how far we've come. Your dad was a baseball, and I doing my homework uh, for the show. Your dad's a baseball and a football coach. Football coach for a long time. Uh, you grew up an yeah, athlete. He, you grew up yeah, around I, sports. In your wildest dreams, did you ever think one day I'm going to be a big league mascot? No, no. I mean, of course, uh, a dream that you and your brother lived was, you know, I dreamt of being uh, really a professional baseball player because my dad started at Michigan in in the late 40s. He was a catcher. He was a team captain in 49 with Michigan. And he he was a little bit of a scrub on the football team, but they they won the uh, Rose Bowl that year. So but he's always been and always was a baseball guy. Dallas Green played for him at Delaware, and he helped Dallas sign his first contract with the Phillies. And, you know, so so I've always been a baseball guy. That's what I dreamed to be, and I wanted to be a left-handed pitcher. I mean, Tug McGraw was, you know, was my hero of heroes, and to be able to become friends with him was a was just a huge bonus. But, no, I was just, I was just thinking I was going to either coach uh, when I realized I probably wasn't going to be too uh, good enough to be a professional player. I wanted to coach and teach and Uh, It was my dad who said, hey, get a job with the Phillies. You'll never know who you'll meet or what might happen. So I was just trying to keep my job, my friend. And uh, when they said, hey, go to New York and get fitted for the costume, I I didn't even question it. I just I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. And I I went to New York and and the rest uh, was history for me and uh, and a beautiful history, too, by the way. Well, I'm I'm actually really intrigued by this. Okay, so you're an intern with the Phillies. Okay, we had uh, a former general manager. Now he writes for the Athletic, Jim Bowden. He was my he was my general manager in uh, Cincinnati when I played for the Reds, and he started off as an intern. You know, next thing you know, he's he's making he's moving and shaking, making big decisions. So you're an intern with the Phillies. 
what did what did that entail? What did you do as an intern? And then we'll get to the and then we'll get to the good stuff. Well, it's funny that you mentioned uh, a general manager because I interned with Eddie Wade. Uh, and we, we still joke today, like, who was on the better path? And, of course, he also says you were, you were on the better path, a beloved figure for, uh, you know, for all the, those years. Um, and I interned with Dave Buck, who now is the president of the Phillies. And, um, you know, so what I was doing was anything they asked me to do. So one day I was going down and asking Bake McBride for an autograph on his bat for a giveaway that we were doing with some of our sponsors um, I was restocking the promotions uh, uh, stock room, which was just all the giveaways, and I was taking inventory. And then I was taking the person who sang the national anthem that day up to the executive area where they could get dinner. And, and it was and anything in between. Um, Frank Sullivan was my immediate boss, and he was director of promotions at the time. And and I, he had a, a what they called a secretary or a, B, a business administrator back then, uh, Chrissy Legault, and and they, um, you know, they were my first mentors. And I, whatever they asked me to do, I did because my dad said, you know, show your value, say yes to everything, and and you'll you'll prove that that uh, you've got value. And who knows, you might you might get a job when you get out of school. And those are the days of. And, and I remember as a kid, Ruley Carpenter was the owner of the Phillies. And that's back when, you know, nowadays in, in, our, uh, in all professional sports, it's very corporate. But these days, you know, it was the family business. Ruley Carpenter, I remember all the players loved him. He was real hands-on. He was a guy that spent time with the players in, in the locker room. And I, I have nothing but fond memories of Ruley Carpenter and his family owning the Phillies. But... When it comes to the fanatic, okay, there's not too many people. You got to be of a certain age to know know about this guy, and he was strictly a West Coast. But the chicken was getting a lot of the attention on the West Coast. Teddy, you know, <laughs> I'm sure a good buddy no, of yours. I, I knew Teddy very well. You know, he had his minor league when I was in the minor leagues. Oh, it's it's the chicken tonight. So before the fanatic, I remember it was the chicken, and and Dad would take me on a West Coast swing when the Phillies would go out to play the Dodgers and the Padres, and that's when I was a kid. Kid is the first time. And back then, it wasn't normal for all these teams to have a mascot, but the chicken for me was kind of the original. I know Bill Giles had a big part in it, but basically, how did the fanatic come about? Well, it's great. I mean, yeah, the, you, you have to give uh, the chicken and, and Ted Giannolis all the credit because he took what was a, a radio, a two-week radio promotion, was lucky enough to get picked because he fit the costume um, and that's what started that whole um, that whole new generation of entertainment that you know from from the fanatic on became big business in baseball. But the reason why Bill Giles got the idea of creating a character was when Dennis Lehman was on a West Coast swing. They saw the chicken just in the beginning of the time when he was really getting noticed, and they're saying. Dennis came back to Bill and said, look, they're watching. It was an expansion franchise. Not, not a lot of people went to the games, but they're watching this chicken more than they're watching the Padres play. And, and we were supposed to be the, you know, the, the ball club that always put together wild and wacky promotions. So Bill calls Jim Henson because he wants to do it right. And he actually gets Jim Henson on the phone and, and Jim uh, turned him over to some people who could help to deliver a concept, you know, a, a drawing. And, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I had finished two years of an internship and this was 1978. 
I didn't think I was getting invited back because they said this is a two-year internship and then you can graduate from college and come back and see us. So I didn't think I was coming back in 78. So, so Bill gets together, comes up with this, with this wonderful drawing that everybody thought was a stupid idea, except for Bill. And that's when they called me at my fraternity house on the campus of Delaware and said, hey, kid, do you want to come back for 1978? You can have your same job back. And I'm saying, sure. What do you want me to do? And they said, you got to go to New York and get fitted for the costume. And I was, I said, wait, I didn't. And they said, David, just go to New York and get fitted for the costume. That's all we need you to do. And, you know, I did. I went, I, I went into the studio on West 39th Street in the garment district. And it, it looked like Geppetto's puppet studio, you know, with these disenfranchised heads and arms and foam and fur. And they measured me stem to stern and said, get out of here and handed me this drawing. And I looked at it and said, oh, my gosh, I'm getting paid to be a Muppet. <laughs> I mean, I could not believe it. And I ran into work the next day and I was showing some of my fellow interns, including Eddie Wade. And they said, dude, you're nuts. You know, they're, they're going to set you on fire. And, and that's when the Phillies, you know, win when they lose. <laughs> you're a sacrificial lamb. And I, I was like, nah, nah, you know, I'm a Phillies fan. I understand this. You know, this is this. They're going to accept this. I know that. Um, you know, because I had the heartbeat of, of the Phillies fan right inside of me. So I didn't have any fear until, you know, the day that I was supposed to wear it for the first time, it was actually delivered that morning. So no experience costume fit me because they measured me for it. And I went to Mr. Jaws and I said, what the heck do you want me to do? And he said, look, you, you just go out and do what you want to do. I want you to have fun. I want you to enjoy yourself. There's no agenda. Just go out there you know, and, and be with the fans. And, and I went tearing out of his office and he realized that he had just told a college student to have fun in this costume. And he screamed at me, G rated fun, <laughs> G rated fun. And that was the, really the only directive I got. And, and, and thankfully so, because they allowed me to go out and fail and try things. And we all collaborated and, and the personality was really evolved from me being a Phillies fan loving slapstick humor. I loved to dance. I was a good dancer. I was, I was really a pretty good athlete. I, you know, I, I played uh, in the Delaware football all-star game. I played baseball. I understood the psyche of baseball players. And, and then I said, Hey, this is my chance to pretend like I'm part of a major league baseball team. And my goal was to get the players to respond to me. And, and that's what I did. I did all the things that, that anybody who wanted to get in touch with their favorite baseball team and their chance to meet, you know, to actually meet professional baseball players that those were my driving forces and the fans just went along on the ride and, and that's how it all worked. Well, it's amazing to me because there, first of all, there had to be something about you that Bill Giles saw in that internship where he just looked at you and said, that's the guy. Because he just sent you, you go, you go get, it's not like he had 10. Could you imagine today and the Phillies at the time? I mean, they're a force. They've been in the playoffs several years at that time. And, you know, two years later, they end up winning the World Series. But could you imagine in today's day and age for the Phillies or, or the Yankees to just say, you know what? We're going to have a mascot. And yeah, Joey over there, the intern, he's going to be the mascot. We're not going to have tryouts. We're not going to see who moves well in the suit, who likes him. Just go. I mean, it wouldn't no, happen, right. right? It wouldn't happen never today. Would have, never would have happened. No way. Never would have happened, which is which is the beauty of, of that time. You know, and you, you, you see what we're involved in, both from the corporate world to the sports world. Things are completely different. And 
you know, the Phillies still were very nimble. Um, they were a family in and of itself, not only a family ownership, but they treated everybody like family. I mean, I played in a three-on-three basketball team where Ed Wade, myself, Richard Dietz, and Dave Montgomery, that was our four-man team, and we would play three-on-three against Ruley, uh, the, the players. I mean, we had, you know, we had all, of course, we had to be careful with some of the players, but, and we were playing with a backboard against a, a stone wall down in, in the basement of Veteran Stadium, and so it was truly like a family. So I think that what Bill says, and he's been, he's, you know, been on the record of saying that he thought I was a smart ass. And all I'm thinking is, wait a minute, I'm Tubby Raymond's son being afforded this job with the Phillies. I don't think I would have, I was acting like a smart ass, but maybe I was just being myself. Um, you know, I know in meetings I, I was asked and would express my opinion as a young intern, uh, but there was a bunch of people that were doing that. So I, I don't know, maybe it was something uh, I didn't believe I had any skill sets. Uh, you know, I later realized that my ability to communicate non-verbally had a lot to do with my mother being deaf. Um, I didn't think about that at the time. Um, it, you know, my mother confirmed it where when we started talking about that and said, yeah, I went deaf when you were three. All you've done your whole life is, is get in front of me so I could see you, so I could understand you. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I'm, I ended up knowing, learning that I had these great skill sets that made me really good at it. But at the time, I just wanted to keep my job. You know, I just—I was just running around trying to be, you know, as silly as I possibly could, so I'd keep this great job that I'd stumbled into. It's—it's it's still amazing to me, and it's—and the reason I like this so much because it was such a part of my childhood. And you know, they say that usually the baseball generations, you know, what, what's your favorite? It's usually when you're a kid. So those seventies teams were right at my alley and that's when, you know, the fanatic came in. So of course the fanatics, my favorite, I had known the chick at the time, you know, compared from 78 to now, now every, in every stadium, every sport, everybody has a mascot back then. It was very rare. Now it was revealed. And this is another fun fact. On the Captain Noah show, which I, as a six-year-old, appeared on the Captain Noah show, so that was cool when I was when I was researching. And uh, Timmy McCarver, who went on to you know broadcast baseball forever, uh, introduced you. Tell me how that went that first day. Oh and this my is, god! We're, we're getting to to your your real debut, but this is kind of when they revealed this is what's coming. Well, actually, no, that's not that uh, you're, you're close because it was the day after. So the very well, that's first what I'm day, about being close, the, the very first. <laughs> well, that's right. We, you know, let's not get the facts in the way of a good story, but it, but it's, but it fits well. So, so I'm the fanatic is just sent out there with the only direction is to go have fun. Make sure it's G-rated fun. That was, oh, April so you 5th. went out first before cap. I went out first and the, oh, next how could it? Oh, so now, all right. Now you, you got to live this, and so did I. So you saw your dad. You were reading about your dad in the newspaper. My whole life, I did the same thing. My, my dad was, a, was an icon in, um, in Newark, and I got all the privileges, privileges of being a, uh, you know, a prince of, of Newark, Delaware, because I was Tubby Raymond's son. So you know what that's like to read about your dad in the paper, and, and, and for good or for bad, right? And you, and you recognize how cool that is. Well, the fanatic comes out and we're all thinking specifically, you know, the group of us that, hey, this might not work. This might be a two day promotion and and it bombs. And we said, oh, nope, sorry, big mistake. But instead, the, the Phillies beat the Cubs that night. And Tim McCarver in the paper said, 
Well, we're one and zero with the Fanatic, and I'm a, I went, oh my gosh, look, we got Tim McCarver just mentioned the Fanatic's name. I thought that was validating and so cool, and that's when the Captain Noah show called and said, we want the Fanatic on, and you know because Tim McCarver mentioned it in the paper, we and, and I'm sure McCarver probably had gone on before because that was you know the preeminent local kids show. And there we were uh, with Marilyn Disjardins, who was my first quote unquote security personnel because Bill wanted, uh, you know, a pretty girl or a, a, not an intimidating bodyguard. We thought, well, we'll have one of the one of the hostesses follow you around. And Marilyn was the first and she it was me or the fanatic and Marilyn and Tim. And I've got a picture from that show on the set. And it's it is one of my most fond memories because I went, whoa, we're in, we're on television Tim McCarver is actually appearing with the fanatic. And, you know, my head just started to, to swell up, not, not because of me thinking to myself big, but like, Oh my gosh, look at what I have access to. And, and it just got better and better and better over the years. First time you walk out on the field at the vet, what are you thinking? They'll, they'll boo Santa Claus <laughs> in Philly. <laughs> That's right. Well, I was just thinking, because of my direction from Bill, I said, well, what would be fun for me? Well, any type of slapstick humor. And honestly, my first thought was Daffy Duck. And I love Daffy Duck because he was hyper and frenetic. And in the, in the cartoons, he would actually bounce off the floors, the walls, and the ceiling. And so he would be constant movement. And then he would stop. He'd be sitting next to someone. He would grab them and he would kiss them and you'd see in the cartoon all the drops of saliva spray all over the screen and then he would be off again. And that's really what I thought I wanted to do. I'm gonna bounce around, I'm gonna move from fan to fan, I'm gonna high five, I'm gonna hug, I'm gonna invade their space, I'm gonna trip and fall. And when, when I first came out, I actually tripped and fell, not on purpose because I tripped. And people laughed like, you know, like it, it, I thought, man, these people are starved for entertainment. So I, I realized, oh, I got to fall down more. And I just kept that frenetic pace. And the first thing I realized was, oh, my gosh, this is physically exhausting. So I realized I'd have to pause and take a break. And then I realized that that pace of being very hyper and then stopping and focusing on one fan and fiddling around with that fan um, and then hearing somebody yell your name and going over to them and moving around until I needed to take a break. Well, I needed to take a break in the first 10 minutes because I had no idea the physical the element of this. So I jumped over the railing to get on the field so I could run off the field to get a break faster than climbing all the way back up in the stands where I came from. And people went nuts because I was on the field and an umpire just happened to give me a little wave. And I waved back at, at him. I can't remember which, you know, might've been Dick Stello or, and I go running off the field and take a break. And, the, and all the ground crew was saying, Oh my gosh, you, you got a wave from the umpire. And you know, I just started realizing that that's when I said, I've got to get the, the players and the umpires and the officials on the field to respond to me because the fans will think that's like, you know, that how funny that would be. Plus, it makes me look like I'm part of the team. Um, and that's that's what I did. It was it was frightening at first. But then when I saw when I recognized, well, no one sees me and people started to hey, who are you? And the name of the fanatic was on the back of his jersey. And I had a pennant. And they said, oh, you're the fanatic. And it, and it was amazing to hear people call out your name and high five. And you know, back then they didn't have cell phones. So occasionally there might be somebody with a camera and they would take a picture. And I went, oh, that's all I have to do is just mingle around in the crowd and enjoy myself. And, and that wasn't frightening and it wasn't hard. I just went out and enjoyed myself. 
and and uh, you know that was a time too where I'd come to the ballpark with Dad when he let me come, and then once the game was going to start, he'd kick me out of the dugout. You know, I'd go take a shower, and I did a lot of my hanging out with the grounds crew. And you mentioned the grounds crew. I mean, in Philly, it was a show in in its own. You know, they come out and, and do the maintenance and they do it. You know, they did a dance. And I remember Froggy and, and a bunch of different guys. So that was kind of my guys. We'd sit right behind home plate. They'd let me pull up a seat with the ground crew. That's where I'd watch a lot of the games as a kid. Then the fanatic comes along and now I got something else to do because I remember following you around. And when you come off the field, I remember you had an assistant and you had a room that you'd go to. And I'd follow you into the room, and I remember seeing you. In those days in Philly, it's hot. You know, Sunday day game, it's a, it feels like 100 degrees, 100% humidity. You know, I got my T-shirt and shorts on, and here's you. And I remember, I can, I can remember it vividly right now. It's like, wow, that looks like it's really uncomfortable. And you'd take that head <laughs> off, and you'd be sitting there just, just a 20-year-old kid, just hair, just wet as could be. You got 80 Gatorades. And that was a, I, I remember that so clearly sitting there going, wow, now what are you going to do next? And I remember it sometimes you'd be like, oh, you'd, you'd give me that look like, kid, you have no idea how hot it is and what I got to do. And you had that assistant with you and she'd be moving on like, Dave, we got to go. We got to go to the next. And I said, hey, fanatic, what are you going to do today? Or, or what are you going to well, do in your next act? And you tell me once in a while. It, it, that was a lot of fun for me. Well, that's, that's a snapshot for me, too, because, you know, what I thought of you and your, your brother was, wow, these are, these are Bob Boone's kids. You know? And, you know, in the way the Phillies handled things back then, we would have every summer there would be a family picnic and all of the families of the front office people and all of the families of the players would come out after a Sunday game and they'd have a big picnic. It was, you know, that sort of thing just doesn't happen these days. They, they don't you know, kind of co-mingle those groups. And it was beautiful to get, you know, to, you know, your family and your mom and I, and, and Schmitty and Donna, um, you know, and, 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 and Tug and his family. And I, you know, I became a fixture for some of the families by doing birthday parties and by doing events at their homes. And, and, you know, the fanatic became kind of a, a go-to and, and that opened up the opportunity for me to get to know these families and these kids and really understand what type of life they lived, you know, and it was, it was wonderful to, to do that and to have a positive effect on their family and the appreciation that I got from, um, you know, the majority of the players over the years became um, relationships I had that, you know, that I trusted, you know, I, I wasn't asking them for autographs. I was, I was just enjoying being able to get to know them. So for me, that interaction with you and your family was, was really critical to, to these wonderful memories I, I have now. So it wasn't just a baseball team and being a fan anymore. This was like my family going out there. And so the wins were much higher in terms of celebration and the losses were much more difficult to deal with. And, and it, and I related to it. I had two, I had three families at the university of Delaware. And of course, watching my dad, you know, win and lose were always big times. And then, then the Phillies family, it's the same thing. So if you can imagine my entire life, like yours was all um, dedicated to, you know, winning. Um, and when we didn't win, it wasn't as much fun. And as the fanatic, I had to continue to perform at the highest level I could, even when we weren't playing well. And that was difficult because as a fan, I was depressed about us maybe having a bad skid, which was great about those years that you mentioned that we really were, 
on the precipice of of being a, a perennial um, you know, winner. And, and that led, you know, just two years later after the Fanatics birth. So I, the Fanatic takes credit for it, by the way, he said, you know, before the Fanatic showed up, they couldn't get over that hump. And after the Fanatic was born and, and then uh, adding Pete Rose to the mix, we, we uh, pushed it over the top in 1980. Nowadays, I, I think it's a lot more mainstream. You know, you go to any minor league park, uh, any major league park for the most part, you know, NBA, NFL, and mascots are kind of normal to be there. So the players are kind of used to it and they interact and, and and it's just kind of something that's, that's a part of the entertainment value. But back then that was something different. And I'm just interested, especially in the beginning, how was the reaction from the players, you know, the umpires, the coaches, the managers, was it overwhelming one way or the other? And it did over time people start to kind of, all right, this is part of the show. I'll play along. Yeah. I think, I, I think in the beginning um, I was intimidated with what might happen. And then, but what, what really evolved was in just short order, I kind of had a personality that really, once I put that costume on, that personality, the fanatic started to take over. And, and it was a, a personality that was a little brash and bold. Um, you know, I, I, I'd grab a Mets fan hat or a, an opposing ma- uh, fan's hat and I would pinwheel it onto the field. You know, people would go, Oh my gosh. And then I'd jump over the, the railing and grab the hat and trip on it, fall on it, you know, mess it up and hand it to, you know, hand it back to the fan. Everybody would cheer. They thought it was funny. But but the real response I got was because I was an athlete, you know, so I understood, you know, good games, bad games, you know, what what a full season was like. So I started playing to them. So I would imitate the entire Phillies lineup and and their physical, uh, uh, you know, Schmitty being cool and how he'd, you know, get ready to lean back. And then when he got ready for the pitch, he'd wiggle his butt a little bit. And I started imitating the players. Well, the opposing players thought that was hysterical. So then I would imitate them, you know, as they were, as if they were terrible, like a, a saggy arm or, or a, a funny walk or striking out, you know, uh, or getting a home run hit off of them. And then when I started doing that, the players started coming to me, Oh wait, you got to do this for so-and-so or my family's here. I want you to go make fun of me uh, in front of my family. And they started really becoming part of, of that experience. So for me, that was my full motivation. If I can get so-and-so to react and Eric Gregg was the first umpire that started to dance with me. Um, and for years, Eric would say to me, ah, I, I made you what you are today without me. The fanatic would have, wouldn't, no one would have known who the fanatic was. And, and part of that's, you know, that's true that when, when I could get Eric Gregg, um, Tug McGraw, uh, you know, your dad, anybody to respond, they were like, oh my gosh, look, like, like the player is a real human being, you know, because they, there's a tendency to fans to think of you as just this person, this, this robot in a uniform. They don't recognize that, you know, that you're humans. And the Fanatic was a great a connector between those, you know, those players and the fans to make them look human, to see them having fun and enjoying themselves and laughing. And that was, that was my goal. My, my goal was get them to laugh and fool around with me pregame um, in the batting circle before an inning started. And, and man, oh man, I, when I got that response, it was the, it was the biggest high. To, to, to get that because it would then be on, you know, at the time there were a couple of uh, sports center style replay shows and um, I, they, they would show the fanatic and it would just be, you know, mind numbing 
about how how cool that was to have thought of something to, to do it, get the response, and then that gets caught in the highlight reel. You mentioned Eric Gregg. I remember that too. Greg was really like a part of the plan, uh, part of the program for you, and, and it probably did. <laughs> in hindsight, it probably helped a lot, especially in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, oh, on yeah. the on the other side, did give me a little Tommy Lasorda and and how Steve <laughs> Sachs was involved. Well, th- and this is great because you know all you know you know all these people. I you know in '79 the Bill Giles lobbied to have the Fanatic go as the designated uh, mascot for Major League Baseball when we went to Japan, and Tommy Lasorda was the manager. And you know Tommy was n- probably known in terms of. Um, promoting and marketing baseball, there was never a better ambassador. And the Japanese baseball fans back in those days, and even still today, just revered Major League Baseball in in the States because they were hoping that their Major League teams were going to be the same you know, type of organization. So Tommy was like a god. And when he came out on the field, I would do what I was doing you know, back at home in the early years is I would imitate him. I'd walk behind him because he was an anomaly. There's no one ever in this world that could ever be knock kneed and bow legged at the same time. <laughs> Cause he was, he just, and he had this little roly poly, uh, you know, body with this knock kneed bow leg walk. And I would walk behind him and you could hear the Japanese audience, you know, actually suck in air like, Oh no. And then Tommy would turn around and he would smack me and laugh at me. And then the fans would go crazy. So I started to develop that routine in 79 and, you know, Tommy got to know me. He, he got mad at me because I was signing the fanatics name on the sweet spot of the baseballs where the manager's supposed to sign. So he, he did a, a mock intervention where he screamed and hollered at me. And I thought, Oh my God, Tommy was sort of yelling at me. And, and then he made me sign every single baseball for the rest of the tour, which, you know, made me late to all kinds of events because I was signing three dozen baseballs. And so we kind of had this relationship and, and, he, re- he loved having that type of play on the field, so I continued to do it. Well, it got to the point where he was good with it until he wasn't because I started doing it more and more, and I think he got tired of it. And, and he used to only bring one of his jerseys uh, when he went on a road trip to Philadelphia because he knew somehow I was getting the jerseys because Steve Sachs used to come into my – uh, locker room. He'd knock on the door and it was like a scene out of the shining with Jack Nicholson. He'd, he'd thrust his hand in through the door and hand me the Jersey. And then he'd put his face in the crack in the door and go, if you ever tell him who gave you this Jersey, I'll kill you. <laughs> and when he was a full contact karate guy, so uh, I knew he wasn't fooling around. So, uh, I mean, to my deathbed, I would have, you know, taken that to my deathbed and not saying that Steve Sachs got the Jersey. And, you know, Tommy, at one point I went because I couldn't get a jersey and, and Sachs would say, look, I, I've only got one jersey. I keep, he keep, you know, he's wearing it. So I went in the next day and, and bought a jersey, um, you know, in, in the uh, in the, the sporting goods store. And I had our clubhouse guy put Lasorda on the back of it. So I came out with the dummy dressed in the jersey and he couldn't figure out how I got the jersey. And. You know, he just lost it that day. He ran out, and I mean, it's the greatest YouTube video you ever watch. And he just, he grabbed the dummy, and and he wasn't saying fanatic. He goes, David, I'll kick your blanket. He blank, and he's grabbing the dummy. He whacks me over the head with it, and my my costume head almost came off. And you can see in the video, I grab it. It it flops all the way to one side, and I grab it so that (laughs) I didn't have a decapitated fanatic on the field. And then you know, and I crawled off to the uh, photo booth. Um, on the field to be able to readjust my helmet. I came out um, 
you know, he fired a baseball at me when I was driving off. And, you know, the next day he was in the newspaper and Stan Hockman's article saying that the fanatic was violent. And, um, you know, Stan Hockman was uh, saying we were both acting like babies. And I remember, Brett, I called up Stan Hockman. So Hall of Fame uh, reporter, I call him up and I go, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, you tell me who's not doing their job. The manager of the, of the Dodgers who comes out and beats up a Muppet? Or me, I'm, and I got him to do it. I'm doing my job. I'm not a big baby. And so he hung up on me because I figured he realized that his career had gone down where, I've got, where he's got the mascot complaining about something that he wrote about him in the paper. So um, yeah, I eventually made it up, made up with Tommy, and he, he was really, truly um, nice to me throughout my whole career, except for that one moment. And he was from Norristown. Every time, every single time I met him in person, he'd say, how's your dad doing? Um, which, which meant something to me because it was, you know, and then he, then he would look at me and he, you know, how he was always around the little entourage and he would look at me and he'd point at me and he'd say, see that kid, that kid's lucky he's alive. And then he would tell the same story that I'd been telling for all these years. And I, and I realized I didn't make it up. It, it actually happened. So, so I, you know, very fond of him and, and, and sorry to see, you know, his passing because, you know, Brett, we're losing those types of personality. And I, I really think baseball needs those personalities and, you know, analytics and, you know, and a lot of the dispassion that comes from, you know, looking on a spreadsheet has sucked some of the fun out of, out of baseball. And, and I, I really think we got to figure out a way to, to, to put that sort of, um, you know, performance, that, that sort of personality back into the game because it's going to attract young people today because that that's really what motivates them is is that type of you know that type of antics and those types of relationships we we don't want to lose those <laughs> this laugh at thinking about Lasorda and the and you because it is gold for you like you legitimately got it pissed so you're thinking to yourself well, this is, you know, I, I like Tommy and I respect him, but this is too good. I got to keep <laughs> running with it. He's getting, I always remember too, as a kid, and even when, you know, when it, when I was playing and I'd see the fanatic had always a little bit of an ego about him. Like he was just kind of bigger than the situation. He, I felt like the fanatic at any time would flip me off and just pull away at his ATV. Like <laughs> this is my well, show kid. Yeah. Get out of here. I know you, well, I know you're playing today. You got a big game, but, but I'm the fanatic. And I appreciated that about it because it, it was, it made him what he was. It was, it was so fun to just see that look like, screw you, player. I'm the fanatic. I loved it. I, I really did. It, it allowed yourself to, to kind of have a moment like you were a kid again. Like, you know, yeah. what is really yeah. important? And sometimes it's important just to laugh and smile at the ridiculousness that was going on. But I, I, I thought it was unbelievable. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think the, the, you know, for years and years, because I got into the business of creating mascots and, and my company worked with the flyers and the result was, you know, was gritty. And the universal part of this is that, you know, uh, mascots have a way to cut through, uh, you know, the, the hubris, the, the egos, the, uh, the emotions, the, the talent, the, the prestige, you know, 
a good mask, I can cut right through that and go right to the human qualities of it. And that's what I had fun with baseball players is to show that they were human and remove all the rest of the notoriety and, and the sensationalism and the stardom away. And let's just, let's play like kids. That's a connector. And when you do that, you connect emotionally to another person and every brand, every marketing executive, they, they are always trying to figure out a way that their brands could connect emotionally to potential customers, to people who weren't customers that maybe could be customers, or to even people completely out of their market. If they could do that, they would be very powerful. So that's what the Phillies captured. And, and 43 years later, the Fanatic is still connecting to folks on an emotional level and the, from a leadership perspective. And, you know, I, I do a lot of keynote speaking in front of big conferences and associations, you know, a few thousand people in the audience. And what I'm talking to them about is this is how you do it. You don't have to have a costume to do it. You just have to have some basic understanding on how you connect with someone, which is to listen intently, you know, and to interact and to have fun and enjoy yourself regardless how difficult the circumstances is. And it's beautiful to see that continue to work today the same way it did when I started. The Fanatic is 43 years later, uh, is still doing the same thing. And, and that's, that's a real powerful thing to remember. And you just said it in a very simple way. It's always good to smile and laugh regardless of what's going on. And, and that's something we all learned in the last 16 months that, you know, taking a break, enjoying yourself, poking some fun, trying to get somebody to laugh and smile is a wonderful step towards normalcy. Um, and, and that's what I love about what, you know, what the fanatic does continues to do today and what other great characters do to distract us with fun. And, and it's, it's wonderful that you mentioned that because you, you put it in a very simple, but powerful term, just laugh and smile. And, and it's in, in the ridiculousness of all of it, it's important to do that. In the beginning, how much, did, was the chicken somebody that you looked to or, or did you, I don't, I don't know. Was he an influence to the fanatic at all? Or did you just say, Nope, this is a, this is a different thing. This is a Philly fanatic. He's going to have his own personality. I mean, no, it seems- no, no question. I, I, I mean, I, well, I, I developed my own personality in my own way. But there's no question that the chicken had tremendous influence. We actually had the chicken come in in his heyday and and the Philadelphia media, you know, uh, penned it as it was the big uh, showdown between the fanatic and the chicken. But what I love when I loved watching what Ted could do in costume was he had the ability to interact with one or two people and at the same time entertain thousands or a full stadium by doing so. So one of the, one of the most important lessons I learned from watching his work was I could tell he didn't care about 40,000 people. He just cared about these two people he was working with or this one person. And that's what I started focusing on because it was intimidating to walk into a stadium full of 25 to 60,000 fans and think it was your job to entertain them. And I realized, no, it's my job to go out and have fun and work with, you know, Brett, uh, because he's Brett Boone and they'll know that's Bob Boone's son or work out with the umpire or with your son or your daughter, you know, do something that would make them laugh. And then everybody in the crowd would say, well, I can't wait for the fanatic to come to us and look what he's doing over there. And in a, so absolutely he was, uh, you know, Ted was a brilliant performer. Um, and, and he, he was really responsible for most of, of the chicken success. Um, I think the difference that I had was, 
the Fanatic was the first team-sponsored character that was built and designed to be part of the team. And then it became exceptionally valuable for the Phillies and continues to be for 43 years later. And that was the model that other organizations followed. Let's create a character that's ours, that's telling our story, that's representing us, that isn't a hired gun, that is somebody who's in, embedded with our community. And that's what we want to create. So that, that's what my business after the Phillies was involved in, creating not just characters, but marketing initiatives that, were, that was driven by authentic storytelling that was designed to connect emotionally to your crowd, to your community, um, and to your customers. So, so that, that, I think, the Phillies allowed me to be a part of creating. And what Ted created was this tremendous entertainment process. So I think I pulled from watching him before I even was the fanatic. And then of course, while I was the fanatic, he and I watched each other. I know he watched me. He may never say that, but I know he watched me and pulled from the success we were having. Um, so, but he was the OG. You're right. He was the first one to show organizations that entertainment could be, that was beyond and off the field could be powerful to continue to build an audience. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the chicken was, he was the original, but the fanatic was right there. I think the fanatic overall, if you, if you took a survey, I'd say the fanatic is the most recognizable mascot, probably in all in the history of sports, but you're right. The chicken was good. And, and that's interesting how you guys interacted. I mean, you've had what an impact you and, and Teddy have had in the world of mascots. I don't know how much you pay attention you know, with all the other sports and there's so many mascots now, but in 2021, David, across all, you know, basketball, football, hockey, there's, there's, there's mascots everywhere. Who are some of your favorites today? Well, they, you know, it's funny about some of them, the favorites that I have are really because of some of their social media presence. They are without a doubt. My favorites are, are already great at entertaining fans at the sports uh, but there are a few that do such an amazing job with social media connection. And of course, when sports were shut down, those were the go-to mascots. So uh, Gritty for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm partial to Gritty because I was part of that process to create him. But the performer is just fabulously, wildly creative in doing his social media. So I would encourage anybody to go watch Gritty's social media, regardless of whether you're a, a hockey fan or a Flyers fan, just for entertainment's sake. And another one who does that in an excellent fashion is um, Benny the Bull. Uh, great uh, uh, performers have been there over the years, but you know Barry Anderson really started it. Um, and, and the current performer, I won't uh, out him, but he is um, a former uh, Auburn performer and he's been doing uh, a wonderful job maintaining the excellence that uh, Benny the Bull is but there are so many Booney in like in mine there's so many unknown great characters I, I always mentioned that Puffy the Taco in San Antonio was my all-time favorite because that performer just wanted to get, I think he was a masochist he just wanted to get knocked over tackled run over with a four-wheeler and he was a huge star in san antonio in minor league sports so and there's so many great uh college characters so uh, albie from from my uh, alma mater at university of delaware ud um is a is a really well-known character and and has won a lot of the ncaa mascot championships so but at the heart of all of it is there now because of like you said how it was started by teddy and 
um, you know, and I got my start, start shortly thereafter. We have so many talented and passionate performers uh, that I, I work and train a lot of these performers and help them get jobs, full-time jobs. There are so many great talented performers that can move, dance, and that are, have gymnastics. Or um, and there's a gentleman by the name of Guy Jackson that's one of the greatest physical performers ever, dancing and and the gymnastic stuff that that he can do. And and these guys have, uh, you know, it, it's really a talent way beyond where where I was now from a physical standpoint. Um, and and that's what I love about it. There, there's an actual path for these performers to exercise this great performance and, and, and get paid and get paid well to do it. So, um, you know, go check up some of the, some of the mascots social media. And I think, uh, you know, slugger in Kansas city is another one, you know, go, go check out their social media accounts and you will sit there for an hour watching the stuff that they posted. It's really awesome. So you did the fanatic 78 to 93, you pass it on to who's now your best friend. Uh, Tommy Burgoyne. Yeah, and, and the thing you mentioned to me, which is, it makes sense. He's right-handed, you were left-handed. And I'm not kidding <laughs> when I say this. I think the reason, other than it was my childhood, and I had never seen a, other than the chicken, I, I, I'd never seen, let alone be around a mascot that was entertaining during the game. But, you, you know, they say it in sports. You know, left-handers, are, they're just goofy. The left-handed pitcher, it's, oh, yeah, he's left-handed. That's kind of the old adage. But I think there's some truth to that. And I think the reason I liked how you moved on the field, it's because you were left-handed. I'm like, it's he's left-handed. He's like that that goofball reliever that's in the pen. He's always doing silly stuff, but he, he makes you smile. I think that was a big attraction is – as weird as it sounds, lefty is just different to us. Seeing somebody I, make movements with their left hand, the fact that Tommy took over and he's he's done an amazing job. He mimicked you. So, and, and I'll tell a quick story and I'll get out of the way here, but, you know, fast forward to my playing career and we'd go, you know, whenever I went to Philly, uh, fanatics obviously there and he'd come up and mess with me and, and it's so weird I thought I know that's not David but this guy if you told me Dave was still doing it of course it is because his mannerisms it's almost like the fanatic became alright if you want to be the fanatic this is how the fanatic moves it's not two different people it's the same guy and, and that's a tribute to him actually you know, studying you and figuring out how does the fanatic move. And I just remember on deck him coming up to me and, and doing his little act and, you know, blowing out his, his tongue and hitting me with his belly. And I'm going, that's, that's David. When I was eight years old, it's, it's him in there, but I know it's not him and I got to go hit right now, but, but it was cool for me. And, I, and it, it, it just brought back memories of, of growing up in the vet and it was cool. But, uh, what kind of job do you think he's done? It, it, was it as oh, good as I explained it? He's amazing. He, yeah. Well, the first thing I would say to you is, you know, a good friend, uh, Brett, would have would have leaned over and you would have killed him and said, the old guy was so much better. <laughs> 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 because I said, he, we are such good friends. And he's, a, he's fabulously talented. And we've, we basically have, you know, he worked with me for five years before I retired and he replaced me. So we were buddies then and he really inspired good performance from me. And, you know, we, we kind of embody the personality and that's why it was really simple for him 
you know, to take over is that we both felt like we knew the fanatic, like he was a good friend and he has been um, incredible. I mean, he's, he's authored all the children's books that are about the fanatic. Like when they moved from veteran stadiums, citizens bank park, he wrote a book for kids about what it's like to move and how to handle that change. And, you know, he's really driven the personality that the fanatic is to another level, but it's funny. I went to a game just the other day. Joe West was uh, upping behind home plate. And I'm watching, as I do, I'm a big fanatic fan. I'm watching them all the time. And I'll call up Tom and said, oh, the thing that you did in the fifth inning was great. But what happens consistently is I'm sitting there watching him and I'm saying to myself, I'd, I'd do, and then before I had I do out of my head, in my mind, the fanatic was doing it. And he'd go over and he'd be messing with the, you know, the pretty girl with the boyfriend. And I said, I would, and then the fanatic would do it. <laughs> and so we really are completely, you know, you know, connected with this personality that we both really know so well. And I think that's why the fanatic has continued to be great is that there's this great connective tissue between Tom as a performer and, and the, the work that I did as a performer. We, we've, you know, we've learned how to do that together. I told you the story when we were talking that I played a trick on Tom when he got the job. I went to him and I said, listen, you know, Bill Giles and everybody's on board for you to take over, but they're very concerned and they've decided you have to be left-handed. So, so for the next week when we were working together, I kept getting to, to make sure he was left-handed and he was struggling with it. And he, I knew he didn't like it, but he wasn't saying anything. And then, then just before you know, we were ready to to move on and he was going to start full time. I said, I was just joking. <laughs> so, you know, just like players, we, we, uh, you know, in the mascot world, we, we play pranks on each other. So, um, you know, we were just talking today. I, I talked to him at least once or twice a week. Um, and we both lament about, you know, if the Phillies aren't playing well, uh, but inevitably comes back to the big green guy. And we, we talk about something funny that happened um, and, and it's, it's great. I, I still feel, and I will always feel like I'm a part of it. Other than the heat pros and cons about being the Philly fanatic. Oh, well, the pros are you, you have the best of both worlds of being a celebrity. So imagine now as a player that you could go out and leverage all of your celebrity and all of your success as a professional player. And then with the snap of your fingers, no one would know who you were. Wouldn't that be better? No one would be stopping you for an autograph. No one would be bugging you for a photograph. No one would say something inappropriate to your wife or your family. You just disappeared. When you walked off the field, you disappeared and no one knew you were. Um, how great would that would be? Well, that every time I wanted to be somebody, I could put that costume on, inhabit that personality and go and get all of the you know accolades and all the wonderful support from from fans who, you know, who looked at you as a beloved character, but I could, so that was the biggest pro. Here's the biggest con that by in no, nothing else would um, get close to this. Do you know how many weddings, how many family events, how many funerals that I missed attending because I had to be at a game or I had to be at another celebration. And then all of my work was during times when everybody else was, either vacationing or it was during the weekends or in the evening. So I was working when everybody else was, you know, taking time off. So my off days were always Monday and Tuesday. Nothing's going on on Mondays or Tuesdays. So for, you know, for 27 years, you know, 16 with the Phillies and then traveling and performing all around minor league sports, 
I missed all kinds of personal uh, connections to family and friends because of my absence. So uh, it was beautiful to be able to be a star whenever you wanted and turn it off. But the negative was, you know, I was, I, you know, and you can relate to this. You miss a lot of, you know, family gatherings. So, you know, when I retired out of costume, um, you know, about seven or eight years after I left the Phillies, I was done. And then I realized I was dedicated to trying to be around my family and, and be with my kids. You mentioned a little bit about uh, what you're doing today, keynote speaker. Where can people find you? Uh, the, the best place is DaveRaymondSpeaks.com. And I am just so passionate about trying to get people to understand how the lessons that I learned in costume can be leveraged by anyone. And it, it is simple to do. It's, dif it's difficult to accomplish, but it's simple to understand uh, about how you can leverage this process to be better at home and to be better at work and to build stronger relationships to get us to understand one another's perspective, which, as you can imagine, today's world, we're filled with that sort of uh, difficult discourse. And that's what I'm talking to companies and organizations about. So if you go to DaveRamSpeaks.com, you can see how you can get me to come and talk to your group and entertain them, uh, but delivering a really important message. Philly fanatic, David Raymond. David, <laughs> thanks for coming on. This is a lot of fun. It, it, it uh, was for me just to go down and, and kind of relive little memory lane and, and so many fond memories of that time. I really enjoyed it. And uh, what we do each and every time on the Boone podcast is we kick it back to Dan Levy to ask a question from the fans. Dan? All right, gentlemen. How are you? Good, good, good. All right. This one comes from uh, Ed in uh, good old Phoenix, and he wants to know this. Dave, what is the craziest request a fanatic has ever received? <laughs> well, I probably can't share those. Now, I, 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 I turned this request down, uh, but uh, I think the craziest request um, that I received and that in many times it was, was similar in, in the request was to do something physically that was exceptionally dangerous because they just assumed I was a cartoon character. Like we want you to climb up to the 10th story of this building and hang over the edge. Cause we thought that would be a great picture. So, <laughs> you know, people were, people would, and I, I take it as a compliment because we were able to suspend belief that the fanatic was actually a living cartoon character. And, you know, like, like the coyote, you could fall off a cliff and then just regenerate. <laughs> I had to constantly turn people down and say, look, that's dangerous. I can't do it. There's got to be no worse feeling than the fanatic telling you, no, this is too dangerous for me. <laughs> I will not fall from a 10-story building. All right, well, thank yeah, you so well, much for coming on the podcast, man. We appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, and it was great to connect with Brett. And um, he's got to say hi to his mom and dad for me because, uh, like the snapshots he had of being with the fanatic being special, um, you know, being with that team and getting to know Bob and, and his family and his, you know, his wife, Sue, uh, was special, so so Brett's got to go back and tell his family I said hi. Mailbag. Brett, you know that sound. Mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag! All right, this one comes from Janet in Hermosa Beach. Brett, do you have any pets? I do. Dog. Had cat as a kid, had a dog as a kid. What do you want to tell us about the dog? What kind of dog? What's his name? Uh, it's a rescue. His name is Milo. He's from Mexico, and uh, 
he's a really cool dog. I'm I'm always the the last one to want a dog. Kids always want the dog. I said, no, you don't take care of it. He's fun for two weeks, and I end up getting stuck taking care of the dog. Uh, and each and every time, I end up. He's my best buddy. So Aww. yeah, I really like him, and I'm I'm pissed that I got him because you know now now he's he's got me. He knows the right person to be nice to. All right. This one comes from Tony in Rochester. And, Brett, he wants to know this. What's the hardest jump to make in pro baseball? A-ball to double-A or triple-A to the big leagues? Tony. Uh, Nothing's even close. Triple-A to the big leagues, by far. You know, people like to say that double-A is a big – double-A is a barometer. Double-A, we decide if you have a chance to be a big leaguer. But when you go from AAA to the big leagues, uh, that's the biggest shock to the system. Now, you know, you're, you're in AAA and you look on the other, you, other side of the diamond, you say, that guy's a really good player, you know, usually pointing out their best player. Well, in the big leagues, that player's at every position. So it's not even close. It's definitely the, just from the minor leagues to the big leagues. Gotcha. All right. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and I'm also the voice of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer, that all gets handled by the one and only Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boone Podcast is handled by the birthday girl, Liz Landry. So if you're listening to this podcast, it's a birthday. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to this show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. That's going to do it. Thanks for listening. See ya.